Wall Street wizard Anthony Scaramucci didn't last long as White House communications director. The Mooch, as the tabloids dubbed him, was named to the job on July 21, 2017. By the end of the month, he was gone, after The New Yorker published an eye-popping story, quoting him engaging in an obscenity-laced screed about two of his White House colleagues, Chief of Staff Reince Priebus and Senior Advisor Steve Bannon. But notwithstanding his brief tenure, the Mooch, in a new book, recounts a meeting during which he made an important appeal to President Trump. Stop bashing journalists, he told him. We gotta have an armistice with the media. It's advice that President Trump obviously didn't follow. We'll talk to the Mooch about how he feels about that and much else on today's Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia no is a ruse. I'm Michael Isakov, chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, editor-in-chief of Yahoo News. You know, uh, you got to hand it to the mooch uh, in one sense. Uh, he lasted, what, 10 days as White House communications director, uh, nearly forgotten today. And yet he managed to leverage that uh, extremely brief tenure into an entire book uh, he's got out and he's now um, selling. Um, it's actually an interesting read, but I, I got to say, you know, that one scene in which he urges Trump to tone down the rhetoric really takes on new relevance in light of this uh, uh, harrowing story about these pipe bombs being sent to uh, the president's political foes. Yeah, absolutely. Now, first of all, um, he will correct you that it was 11 days, not 10 days. I don't know. know. <laughs> I, I did the math. He's, he was appointed on July 21st, and he was dismissed on July 31st. That sounds like 10 days to me. <laughs> okay. But, uh, you know, First of all, he, in a lot of ways, is like Donald Trump, you know, his former boss um, and kind of his hero in that he's an impresario, he's a showman, and he's, uh, you know, a really colorful, voluble uh, guy. So, you know, we have a great conversation with him and um, never lacks um, kind of interesting things to say. I think that this issue of Trump's rhetoric and whether um, it has contributed to some of this violence or attempted violence with these pipe bombs is a really, really important issue. I don't know the extent to which um, in this highly polarized um, partisan environment it's going to have a real effect uh, because his supporters are just going to say the Antifa left and the Bernie uh, bros have used uh, very hot, heated uh, rhetoric as well, um, and there have been some attempted violence or some actual violence against conservatives. What he has to say about this, I think, is significant, and I think people should listen carefully to it. And I think this is an issue that's going to be with us for a long time. And at some point, someone's going to figure out um, how to actually pull off uh, these kinds of bomb attacks, and that's going to be a very scary moment for this country. I agree. And uh, why don't we get right to it and bring him in? 
Anthony Scaramucci, uh, welcome to Skullduggery. Hey, great pleasure to be on. And may we call you the Mooch? You can call me the Mooch, no problem. You know, that's right. been my nickname since 1972. So uh, <laughs> The liberals love that nickname because they think it's a pejorative, but I enjoy it. Okay, It's right. a compliment to me. Right. So I want to uh, ask you about your book, which was a quite interesting read. It's called Trump, the Blue Collar President. But the passage I want to start out focusing on is your meeting with the president, uh, right after you're named White House communications officer, uh, director, and you're talking to him about his relationship with the media. And you say, you write in the book, you told the president, we got to have an armistice with the media. We have to stop battling each other. You were trying to tone down the rhetoric of this president about reporters about the media, his claims about the media being enemy of the people. It does not seem to be advice uh, that the president ever followed. And we have graphic new evidence today from his tweet just this morning. A very big part of the anger we see today in our society is caused by the purposely false and inaccurate reporting of the mainstream media that I refer to as fake news. Mainstream media must clean up its act fast. Given the advice you gave to President Trump, how do you feel about the way he has responded with this tweet to the uh, news about the uh, the bombs being sent to uh, all sorts of former well, uh, officials and the news and media. the news media and, and the CNN. Media and CNN. Yeah. Well, before I give the uh, my specific advice, I just want to say something generic: is that like you can like somebody and you can be loyal to somebody and be supportive of them, but you can also break from them where you think they're doing something that's hurting themselves. And so I, I believe firmly, and I want you guys to think about this, sycophancy is actually an act of selfishness. It's actually an act of self-preservation. And so you're sitting around in the court, and you're going to be a courtier, and you're going to be a sycophant in order to preserve yourself. But loyalty, loyalty in my mind, is much closer to the word honesty in the dictionary. And I think people that are very, very loyal as opposed to just sycophants, will we'll speak openly about what things could get done right. And I'm going to give you guys one more quick specific. Dick Fold was a great guy, but he surrounded himself with sycophants. They told him the business was going wonderfully, and it was the largest bankruptcy in history in 2008. And so for me, I like people around me that are willing to tell me the truth, that have a backbone. So having said that, I strongly disagree with the president's approach here. Uh, the president would be in the mid-50s, possibly higher on his approval rating, if he dialed back some of the rhetoric and he returned to his gregarious self circa 2005 when he started The Apprentice. And so his, his path directionally is creating a self-funded headwind that's slowing down his approval ratings. And I want to make one more quick point. I want you to go to the Kavanaugh situation. The president is out of the spotlight and the heat is off him for three weeks as everyone's focused on Justice Kavanaugh and what he did and what he did not do. And lo and behold, the president's approval ratings are levitating over that three-week period of time into the 46-47% zone, according to the Wall Street Journal NBC News poll, which came out this past Sunday. So, so to me, less is more, uh, uh, a little bit more gregariousness, a little bit of peep peace pipe smoking, it would allow people to focus on some of these great policies that he's put in place 
that have allowed the country to do better and to grow faster. Okay, but Anthony, you're making a political point. You're talking about how if he toned down his rhetoric, it would you know push up his approval ratings. But I guess we're asking a question about words having consequences and uh, whether you personally approve of the language that he uses, the rhetoric he uses, and whether, you know, in some sense, as the president of the United States, who's supposed to unify the country, if this kind of rhetoric, maybe not in these instances, maybe you can't make a direct line to, you know, these uh, pipe bomb attacks, but, you know, isn't there a danger that it could? Well, I, you know, I, I would like to think I was making a comprehensive point. I mean, I was specifically driving politics there, but what you just said, I firmly agree with. I think that this, this, this sort of rhetoric and this sort of nastiness could spill over. And by the way, I don't think he's the only accomplice to the crime. The Democrats are inciting people. Maxine Waters would be an example of that. Some Republicans are inciting people. Uh, there's a combination of, but, of, but of, Trump, of, of forces. But Trump's got the biggest megaphone as, as the president well, of the United States. The yeah, right. He controls, well, he controls two things. He controls the news cycle, and he controls the bully pulpit of the most powerful office in the world. And so then it would be incumbent upon him. There's a great expression from Winston Churchill, in victory, magnanimity. And it's incumbent upon him to be more magnanimous to the people uh, that are his adversaries to see if he can dial them into something that is a little more harmonious. And so, so I've said that. I said that to him 15, 16 months ago, my short stay in the White House. Uh, it was like the Holiday Inn. It was like a Holiday Inn extended stay visit. Okay? <laughs> and, and, I, and I would say it to him today if I had the chance to talk to him. How did he take it when you made this pretty argument good about to him? It. We he need was, an he, armistice. He was pretty good about it. In fact, he started the conversation... Uh, we were in the Oval Office. He was sitting at the Resolute desk. I was standing in front of that desk, and he looked at me and said, hey, I had a 45-year great relationship with the media. What the hell happened? And I looked at him, and I said, well, you know, you can't declare war on the media for starters. So allowing Steve Bannon to uh, declare war raises the tension level of everybody. And yesterday is a very good example of this. Uh, Vice President Pence puts out a tweet denouncing the attacks. The president affirms that tweet. If there wasn't a war going on between the president and the media, the media would have given him the benefit of the doubt. They would have said, okay, this guy's probably very busy right now. He put out a short tweet. But their conversation after the Pence and the Trump affirmation, oh, he didn't do enough. And my point is, there should be more goodwill banked and that was the job, in my opinion, it still is, for that matter, of the comms department. And I, I put a four or five page comms plan together uh, that I was about to execute before I got fired. And in there was, we have to be a customer service organization from comms. The press, whether we like them or not, are our customers. And we're serving a product here from the White House, which is the president's policies, the execution of those policies, and the explanation of the results of that execution. And whether you're a hard left journalist or a hard right journalist, it's our job to serve it up. If the president wants to be upset with CNN or he wants to pick a fight with some uh, organization that he feels is treating him unfairly, that's up to him. He's the president. But us here in the comms team, we got to service these guys. And if we do that, we will systemically dial down the tension. 
Um, but, but one problem one problem that happens because the fish does think from the head down. President doesn't like the press, and so the people that want to prove their loyalty to him run around inside the place and don't like the press. That's 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 where the cultural issue is that needs to change. But look, you, in in the book, you blame Steve Bannon for this. Obviously, you and uh, Bannon uh, were not uh, getting along. <laughs> you viewed him with great distrust, as he did you, as well as uh, Reince Priebus. But you, you write in the book, well, you know, Bannon had started a war with the media. He was calling the press the opposition party. But look, it's the president himself who called the press the enemy of the people? It wasn't Steve oh, Bannon. No, oh, there's no question. But you know, the, the the president prior to the war declaration, just go back, because I've actually studied this and I did a lot of research on the book. Prior to the war de- de- declaration, the president was somewhat adversarial. Once in a while, a hard pushback. Once in a while, an ad hominem shove at a journalist. But he wasn't full-blown the enemy of the people style until after the uh, the, the Bannon War Declaration. And, and let me just give you... you so know, what, I mean, Bannon is the puppeteer and, 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 and Trump is the puppet no. here? I mean, no, Trump we, knows we, what he's saying we, when he says enemy of the we, people. We, we, we both know that that's what got Bannon in a lot of trouble. He went out and he wrote two books. He wrote The Devil's Bargain and he wrote Liar and Furious, which some people call Fire and Fury. And so he, he wrote okay, those he's two books. He quoted in those books. He didn't write those books. Oh, he, he, he was a gigantic was a shadow contributor to both of those books and even came up with the title, The Devil's Bargain. And so the implication in both those books that he was the hand puppet for Donald J. Trump. And so he, he thought of himself that way and he told others uh, that. Yeah, but and you're that feeding that. You're, to the president because you're the president endorsing that. I'm sorry. You're endorsing that by saying it was Bannon who made the president say, call the press the enemy no, of the people. You're, 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 you're really not. You're really not picking up what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying sure the president. You know, you have you have Emperor Hirohito and you have Tojo. Okay, war got got declared. Right now there'll be somebody in the headlines will say that I compared him to those people. I'm sure, but <laughs> I, did, I didn't. I didn't compare them to those. People. I'm just pointing out that there are different people that made decisions to declare war. Bannon was the general that declared war. Trump was the emperor. Okay. At the end of the day, Trump followed suit. And once the press really started hitting him and he read the Harvard study, 92% of the press going after him, he, he, he hit the press with every barrel that he had uh, on his battleship. And so I'm not, I'm not saying it's all Bannon and it's not Trump. Of course it's Trump or President Trump. But what I am saying is that you can point to that day when the war started. That was the Pearl Harbor. That was the, uh, you know, the, 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 the original battle that got things started, the, uh, the, the Nazis crossing into, uh, into Poland. And, and my point is it's a mistake because no president in history has won a war with the press. There's too many of them, and there's only one of you. And your staff, no matter how thickly you staff the White House, it's way thinner than the many thousands of people that are covering the White House. And so, so I make no mistake of what I'm saying. I'm just using Bannon's war declaration. Is, in my mind, that's the date the full-blown war started. But, uh, Everything but, that happened after that was very aggressive rhetoric, and now it's tippling towards violence. And I think that's a big shame, and I think we have to figure out a way to cut it back. Yeah. But, Anthony, it seems like um, there's a kind of a pattern here in your book where – you blame Bannon 
for uh, and kind of let Trump off the hook on some of the most controversial things that he's done since he's been either running for president or president. I mean, the on the you weren't there at Trump Tower the day he announced, um, uh, but where where he famously talked about Mexicans being rapists and murderers. But you blame Bl- Bannon for that. You well, know, Bannon no, wasn't and, even. And, excuse and, me, Bannon wasn't even with the campaign at that point. He was not. He was not working with Donald Trump I at mean, all. I mean, I. I read that book, and I've read it probably seven or eight times when I was proofreading it. I don't remember blaming uh, Bannon for Trump's uh, announcement speech in June. Well, you're saying that I yeah, you're saying we'll, that I'm blaming. We'll go back. We'll go back uh, and look Bannon. at that. But but um, uh, you know. But you know, then there's also, no, there's the, no evidence of that in my book right. that I'm blaming right. Bannon. For well, I'll go back and look speech. at that. But the, Trump, also then uh, there's Bannon joined the campaign uh, a year and uh, two months after that speech. Yeah. All right. All right. You may be right about that. Uh, we'll look. We'll look at it. And get back to you in a sec. But and then the framing of uh, globalism, you know, the globalist versus nationalist. Obviously, that was something that Bannon was, uh, you know, did. But, you know, just the other day in Houston at that at that Texas rally, uh, Trump was out there proudly saying, you know, I'm a nationalist. So, I mean, that's Trump. Trump's not a nationalist. He can say that he's a nationalist 400 times. Uh, but if you know the historical definition of nationalism, the Orwellian definition, the Barbara Tuckman definition, tough, uh, Trump is an antagonist, but he's not a, he's not a nationalist. There's no, there's no, again, there's no evidence that supports that he's a nationalist. What he likes doing, and what I tried to present at CNN yesterday, and that ended up with the headline, Scaramucci calls Trump a liar. What he likes doing, he likes saying very provocative things. And in the case of uh, lighting up the media, he likes saying very inaccurate things because he knows the media will jump on him like a hall monitor in the middle school uh, and reprimand him. And he knows that his base loves it when the media reprimands him. It galvanizes them. It gets them angry. It brings them to the fore. And he's doing that to try to get them to participate in the vote on November the 6th. And so so you can you can you can hate him for that. Uh, You can hate me for explaining it. Uh, but in my mind, he's intentionally lying as opposed to just lying, lying. As it relates to a nationalist, he's saying the word nationalist because he's hoping that somebody that really understands that word that hates him will get up on the television and say, this SOB is a militant nationalist. And uh, his base, they enjoy it. They don't, they don't, they don't mind it. So, and, uh, you uh, guys could be upset about that, but that's what, that's what it is. And so just I mean, on the, uh, I'm really trying to be observational and less political about the analysis. Right. Uh, just to uh, buttonhole the whole question of uh, what you wrote in the book about Bannon and the, uh, and the speech referring to Mexicans as, uh, as uh, rapists and murderers, you write in the book on page 169 uh, that you thought the speech was narrow-minded, and you thought that his words were too rough, and then you write, part of the president's immigration policy is a leftover from Bannon's reign as presidential advisor and strategist. So there you were linking Bannon to that rhetoric. No, no, I think you're referring to the president's inaugural address. Uh, no, the, no, the, it's it's, not the, it's no, when not he the came down the escalator and, yeah. at Trump Tower announcing his candidacy for the presidency, you're, you were referring to his announcement speech. That's where he talks about rapists coming in from Mexico. OK, so, I mean, I get, again, I have to go back. I have the book in front of me. We'll go back over it. But I, I again, I don't believe that I linked Bannon to that speech. I do believe that I linked Bannon to his immigration policy, and I do believe I linked Bannon to some of the coarser 
elements of the president's immigration policy, which I roundly disagree with and have spoken out publicly against. Yeah. Uh, but but I don't believe I linked Bannon, who wasn't part of the campaign. I frankly, at that time, wasn't part of the campaign to the president's original speech when he came down the escalator. But, you know, we, we can we can debate that and I'll look at it very carefully. I, I, I do believe that uh, uh, Bannon had a, a direct flu- influence on the president's inaugural address. And I do believe that there were softer elements in the president's inaugural address that he stiffened and made harder. And I'm not necessarily in agreement with that because I think it uh, I think you can get the same results that the president's looking for, which is an enforcement of our legal immigration laws and allowing for legal immigration and and putting down and reducing illegal immigration without doing things that are against the culture and against the identity of the United States and how Americans view themselves. So just to be very clear here, because you've said you disagree with the president's comments uh, uh, about the media, you disagree with what he tweeted today in light of the um, of the pipe bombs that are being sent to uh, former presidents and uh, federal office holders. But do you disagree only because you think it undercuts the president's message or do you accept that these words can be and are dangerous? Well, both. I think, I think it's both. I think it's, I think it's hurting him. I think I would like to see him in the mid-50s. But, but there you are making a political it's, it's, point again. I'm not asking you for a political well, point. Was, I'm, I'm asking well, you for I'm, an ethical, I'm moral you, point about the I'm rhetoric. Giving you, I'm giving you a two. Bar- I'm giving you a two-paragraph response. So the, 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 <laughs> the first paragraph is that it's it's both, and that it's hurting him. It's holding him back politically. And the second paragraph of the response, because I do believe it's both, is that the coarseness of the rhetoric, and the volatility of the rhetoric, and the response to his coarseness, met by additional coarseness, could tip over into something that nobody wants, which is violence. Ted Cruz has said as much. Uh, you know, if you think Maxine Waters is a shrinking violet in this situation, I can tell you that she isn't. And so there's a lot of culprits here. It's not just the president. But we said earlier in your podcast, which I agree with, the president controls the news cycle and the bully pulpit. He has to be the bigger person here he has to be the magnanimous person here and dial it back a little. I think that'll take the pressure out of the system. Um, okay. I do think that, and I think it would help him. I think it would help him politically, and I think it would help the country culturally. Okay, just to move on a second. So there's a story that was in the New York Times uh, relevant to you know your former position as communications director, which is that the president um, you know, kind of insisted on using his personal cell phone to make calls to people, and the Chinese and Russians, you know, were probably listening in and maybe even developing policy based on their ability to listen into his uh, intimate conversations on his personal cell phone. As a communications director, was that a concern of yours? Uh, I mean, he doesn't no, want to be... I wasn't, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. No, I wasn't there long enough for it to be a concern. It didn't, it didn't get, my, it get to my radar screen. What I was working on was eliminating the leakers. I was doing a pretty good job of that. I mean, we were blowing people out that were big, big leakers. And that leaking dropped dramatically as a result of the departure of Priebus and Bannon and Spicer and those guys. But, but as it relates to that specific issue, um, I do worry about that because I understand the president's need to feel connected to the world. You know, you know that's a gilded cage as much as I do. And particularly, you know, I was only there for, for 10 days, but you're, you're ensconced in there, okay, 
uh, or as uh, uh, Michelle Obama called it, a gilded prison even, um, he wants to feel connected. He wants to feel the flexibility of that connection. But I do, I do think it's a mistake because, you know, he asks people their honest opinion of things. He's formulating policy, as I describe in the book. He'll ask 10 people their opinions, and then he does a synthesis of those people and picks and chooses what he thinks is important, and he measures what they're saying based on what their biases are and his respect for them. And I, and I, and I, I wouldn't want Chinese or Russian spies listening into that stuff. And so I'm sort of glad that that's in the New York Times, and hopefully somebody's there talking to him about it, trying to get him to dial that back a little. But he says, he tweeted today, that the so-called experts on Trump over at the New York Times wrote a long and boring article on my cell phone usage that is so incorrect. I do not have time here to correct it. I only use government phones and have only one seldom used government cell phone. Uh, the story is so many, many O's, so wrong, exclamation point. Um, do you, is that true? I mean, you think he's has never used his personal cell phone since he's been president? I, I, I... I, I think in during the transition and stuff, he probably did. My guess is now um, maybe they've got him convinced not to. I'm not close enough to it, so I can't. He doesn't call you. Really, he, he hasn't called you on his. Uh, I, when I when I have spoken to the president, I'm usually coming through the, the uh, White House signal operator. And so that signal operator has a scramble transmission. And, uh, you know, the way the way I have I have found him talking to people is through a signaled scramble transmission it could be a cellular phone, but it's not a Samsung or an iPhone. It's something that the government has designed uh, that has like that uh, that scrambling capability, so people really can't tap into it. Uh, you talked about your efforts to, to to smoke out leakers and fire them, but of course, you also, as part of that, wanted to bring in the FBI to investigate who was leaking about, uh, you know, your own financial disclosure form to the Export-Import Bank. You were trying to finger Reince Priebus for that. Was it really appropriate to bring in the FBI to find leakers about stuff that isn't classified at all? Um, I mean, is that okay, what we need the back. FBI let's, to be doing? Let, let, let's go back to that, because I think that's a, I think it's an interesting point to bring up. Okay, so that, that, that tweet that you're referring to, I actually deleted that tweet. Uh, because I think what you're saying is actually right. Uh, but what he was doing and what I was doing, and this is something I do write about in the book, I put my pride in my ego into my decision-making. At the end of the day, Reince Priebus did not want me as the president's OPL director. Um, uh, the president wanted me as his OPL director, and I was getting the Washington two-step. That's Office of Public Liaison, by the way. That was the yeah, job you were yeah, first so that, in line for. I was for. supposed to be the right. president's chief networking officer, effectively what Valerie Jarrett was to Barack Obama. And I, and I, and, and Priebus and Bannon did everything they could to block me from that job. Why? And, Why didn't they want and, you? Why did they have it out for like, you? I, I think there were a couple of I think in Bannon's case, he didn't like the fact that I was close to the World Economic Forum. That was too much of a quote-unquote globalist uh, sort of a, a thing, and there was too much of an element of globalist a philosophy. globalist cuck, and, as he says. Yes, exactly. And in, <laughs> and in, in Priebus's case, um, I think he felt that I was overly loyal to Trump and less loyal to the Republican Party, where his loyalties really did lie. Remember, he told Trump to get out of the race right after the Access Hollywood incident. And so, you know, he, he was really flooding the zone with RNC people and people that didn't really like Trump that were trying to block him during the uh, nominating process. And so he knew I liked Trump and I was a, a fellow New Yorker and I was pretty upfront sort of a guy. 
and he didn't like that. You know, uh, Priebus is more of one of those, you know, he, he tries to front up as Richie Cunningham from Happy Days, but he's really a Sith Lord, <laughs> you know, and so that, he's that, really a what? that sort of stuff, he didn't. He's a Sith Lord from Star Wars, you know, with the with the red paint and the red eyes. You know, this guy's a, a super bad guy. So, so what ended up happening there? Uh, he was leaking on me. He was using his operational research uh, capabilities. There was probably 180 negative stories written about me over 10 days. Uh, and you know, I'm not stupid. You know, I showed the president, like, uh, you know, Carrie did from Homeland, w- who was leaking where and how they were doing it. You could just go to the bylines at the bottom of those reports. Reporters like putting their names on stories. I would circle them and show, okay, that guy's close to this person. This guy's close to that person. And you could build and really understand where the leaks were coming from. And so I knew, I knew Priebus was doing that to me. And I made a mistake, frankly, when the financial disclosure came out. Uh, it got posted immediately. I thought Priebus had leaked it on me. And I made a mistake. But the FBI stuff, which I did delete, that actually came from Sessions. You guys may not remember that, but uh, uh, Attorney General Sessions, shortly after my departure, gave a speech, which I was working on with him, about leaking, and that some of these leaks were actually in violation of the national security policy of the U.S., and he was sending out a cautionary message to people to stop the national security side of the leaking because that was going to lead to a potential prosecution. So. So if you're saying that I made a mistake uh, by tweeting out the FBI, which, of course, I never brought the FBI into anything, you're a thousand percent correct. But as I point out in a 300 page books, I made many phone volumes of mistakes in 11 days. That wasn't just the only mistake. Well, I made. Let, let's get to what was your biggest mistake, which was uh, your conversation with The New Yorker, uh, which led ultimately to your uh, uh dismissal. And um, I, I was struck because I remember it was reported at the time this that uh, in this conversation in which you're going off uh, using obscenities about Priebus and, and, and Bannon, that you thought the uh, uh, the conversation was off the record. But you acknowledge in your book on page 261 that you I didn't use those exact words. And look, you're the White House communications director. If you're going to be talking to a reporter and you don't say off the record, three words, um, pretty good assumption that you're going to get quoted. Um, maybe, maybe, you know, somebody like Howie Kurtz said to me that he's been in Washington for 40 years uh, and he's never seen a journalist do that to a White House official in 40 years. So maybe you're right about that. I don't know about that. I mean, if you're going off about the White House chief of staff uh, and the senior advisor. Go listen to the recording. Uh, You know, uh, don't take the sound bites. Listen to the entire conversation because he was forced eventually by his editor to put out the entire recording. And what you would find in the entire recording is that he's actually asking me in a very obsequious way if I would be willing to do a profile with him in the New Yorker magazine. And I responded, what do you think, I'm Steve Bannon? I'm as self-promotional as him. And then I used an expletive, okay? What's also left out of the story, what's also left out of the story is that I knew his family, and my dad worked with his father for 50 years. And what's also left out of the story is I was developing a relationship with him and he knew that we were having a very colloquial conversation. Now, again, I deserve to be fired because what I did, the mistake was a fireable offense. So I'm not sitting here disclaiming it. 
I'm not sitting here blaming anybody, and I'm certainly not playing the victim. I made a mistake. Uh, it was a fireable expense, uh, you know, uh, expense, and I got fired for it. And so, you know, what else could I do? I mean, I, I, I think I've paid my penance for that. I remain loyal to the president and the president's agenda. Um, but if you're, if you're saying, let's revisit your mistake with R- Ryan Lizza, and you made a mistake, and here's the mistake that you made, and you're a dummy for assuming that this guy was going to hold your confidences, all of those things are true. Well, you also suggest in the book that Ryan's, Ryan Lizza's story wasn't really legitimate, that it was gossip. And I want to ask you about I don't that. Understand what that means? Well, look, well, I mean, just look in the in the interest of complete accuracy. You know, you you refer to what you said to Liza in vague terms, but you know what you actually did was you called Priebus, who was then the White House chief of staff, a fucking paranoid schizophrenic. Uh, and uh, you said of Bannon, uh, I'm not Steve Bannon. I'm not trying to suck my own cock. So I, I'm just, look, you're the White House communications director, and you're talking about two of your senior White House colleagues in rather scathing language. You know, that does sort of qualify as news in and of itself. Okay, well, certainly Ryan Lizza thought that. Ryan Lizza made a decision, which I felt was a transactional one, uh, to report on that story. Um, and there's other journalists, and maybe the two of you wouldn't be in that category. It sounds like the two of you would be more in the Ryan Lizza category in terms of your personal behavior and code of ethics. But there's a, a group of journalists that would look at that and say, okay, they were clearly having an off-the-record conversation. And by the way, uh, you know, I would say those, uh, those those things were inappropriate, and I apologize for them. But that doesn't mean that I had any taste for uh, for Bannon or Priebus. They were very, very bad guys, and they were such bad guys. You just think about this. The president, uh, despite their admonitions, he brought me in there to help him get rid of those two guys. So, so look, uh, the world happened the way it happened. I'm a big boy. I'm not complaining about it. Uh, there's no whining from me. Uh, and I'm illustrating in the book that I, in fact, made a mistake. So I, I don't understand the point or where you're going with the conversation. No, only just to sort of flesh out what happened. But look, let's move forward. Um, you're still a supporter of the president, correct? Well, absolutely. I think, you can, I think that's self-evident from the right, book that right. I just read. Okay, fair enough. Are you helping him or the Republicans in this uh, in the midterms right now? Well, I've certainly helped the Republicans. I mean, I've given to a number of different races. I've gone out on the on the campaign trail where I've been requested. Uh, I've given speeches in places like Ohio and Michigan and, and, and down in Florida. And I've given some speeches here in New York for some of the candidates and a few up in Connecticut. And so I'm happy to help out. I see myself as a team player. Um, and when I'm asked to help, I, 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 I'm not going to stick my nose into places where people don't want me, where, but where someone has felt uh, that I can help them generate uh, fundraising or I can help them generate support for their candidacy. If they, they ask me and I can fit it into my schedule, I've certainly gone out of my way to do it. And, and just finally, uh, if you were asked, uh, if you had the opportunity to give the president some advice today on um, uh, what he should do, how he should handle himself, what would you tell him? Well, I mean, look, I mean, he, he doesn't necessarily need my advice. I think he's doing, by and large, a great job, as evidenced by the economy, things that are going on in the national security realm, things that are happening for the African-American and Hispanic-American labor markets in terms of the tightening there. 
Um, I just think that the uh, the battle right now is his policies versus personality. Uh, the people that really, really like him are focused on policy. The people that really, really dislike him are focused on personality. And I think uh, knowing him as long as I know him, there's certain uh, dials in his personality that he could turn to uh, where I think that uh, he would be doing better with independence. Uh, and I would like to see him get his approval rating through 50% which he's fully capable of doing. If you look at the economic dashboard and all the vital statistics of his presidency, it's thus far been a stupendous success. But I think there's been some headwinds here associated with uh, you know, the bellicosity of the rhetoric and some of the things that go on with the media. And I think if there were adjustments made there, he would be doing much better in terms of the approval rating. I don't really think he could be doing much better in terms of the actual results. Anthony Scaramucci, thanks a lot for joining us. It was a great conversation, and uh, good luck with the book. Great. I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to be on, guys. Uh, have a great upcoming weekend. All right, you, you too. too. All right. For a uh, take on our conversation with the Mooch, we've got our Yahoo colleague, Hunter Walker, on the line, who was listening in. Hunter, welcome back to Skullduggery. What did you, what did you think? Well, well, let me tell you, the, the mooch was on fire. Uh, I think that's safe to say. Great. Um, you we want people on open... fire on Skullduggery. <laughs> you guys really bring it out of people. But I think, you know, a major takeaway for me is that this is a guy who is just still so caught up in his upset feelings and the various grudges he had during what was a 10-day stint in the White House. And he's viewing everything. 11, that 11. He's insistent that uh, 11, it was 11 oh days. God. So, <laughs> But, he, you know, he's viewing everything through that lens. And I, I would throw in a big note of caution on some of what he said, um, particularly the idea that um, Steve Bannon was the auteur of this, you know, Trump administration war on the press. And that really was contradicted by something else the Mooch said, which is that Bannon was a major press source. He was constantly leaking. He was a major contributor to multiple books. This is a guy who had a robust relationship with the press. And really, we saw the you know, stark shutdown um, between the White House and the press happen in the sort of post-Bannon, post-Spicer era, where you had you know, Sarah Sanders basically uh, almost eliminate the briefing at this point. You had the rhetoric really ramp up. And what I find interesting is that that appeared to soften in the past literally two or three weeks where you saw the president re-engaging, doing impromptu press conferences, talking at the helicopter, really taking over the press secretary role in lieu of the briefing. I personally assumed that was due to the new um, communications director, Bill Shine. And, you know, now we've seen this horrific set of incidents happen. We've seen the president return to anti-press rhetoric, even, you know, as this whole bombing situation is unfolding. And my question is, will they return to that, you know, war on the press posture? Or, you know, is that advice that seemed to be coming from Mooch, maybe even Bannon and also Bill Shine, to kind of re-engage with the press, going to prevail? So you're, you, what you're saying is when you let Trump be Trump, that's when the war kind of, like, heats up between, uh, between Trump and, and the press. But that's who he is. I'm not sure about that. No. I'm not sure about that either, because as Mooch was pointing out, you know, this is a guy who, uh, you know, all of us who came out of New York know this, I and mean, he just sat on the phone with journalists all day. I think it was more when, you know, John Kelly came in, they, they stopped him from doing that. 
you saw him returning to that, but, you know, there's this new feature of it where after, you know, about almost two years in the White House, you know, President Trump is really angry at the press. So here's a guy who used to talk to the press every day, used to be super comfortable. I mean, he would call me constantly on the campaign trail. Um, and now there's this fundamental tension because he's been so angry about some of the reporting that he and other members of his administration have attacked the media. But look, this is coming now, this conversation uh, in the midst of the ongoing investigations into these pipe bombs that uh, have been sent to the newsroom at CNN, to former President uh, Obama, to uh, uh, many others, uh, Vice President Biden. And, you know, the question on the table is, to what degree uh, does the president's does the president's rhetoric contribute to this atmosphere that has led to these pipe, pipe bombs being sent, and uh, whether this is going to have some political effect on the uh, upcoming midterms? The first thought that I, I have to preface everything with is that you know we don't totally know what's going on here. This is an ongoing situation. And obviously, there's some political component to this, since the the targets are, you know, a list, almost like a a fever dream of, you know, right-wing or far-right media's, um, you know, conception of who is running the Democratic Party. I mean, George Soros, Maxine Waters, Robert De Niro, in addition to the former presidents. So, So these attacks are clearly political in some way, but what the ultimate motivation of the person behind this or persons behind this is just something that's not clear yet. But we are getting into a bit of this rhetorical debate. And I think, you know, I, I saw this kind of stunning moment on TV this morning where they were referring to pres- the president's tweet where after, you know, seeming to strike a more balanced tone and make sort of more of a pre- traditionally presidential call for calm, um, the president took to Twitter this morning and, you know, lambasted the fake news again. And an anchor who I won't name got up and said, you know, is this the message that the White House wants to be sending? And, and I found that so funny because it's like, this is the message that the president's sending, as though he's not the White House. So Trump clearly is back to his attacks on the media. And, it, you know, it's really far different than what we might see from any other president in a moment of, you know, national violence. I, I don't think we would see anything other than calls for unity and calm. And that's clearly not the unified message that we're, we're getting from Trump and his White House. Isn't, um, isn't, and, you know, isn't Trump just in campaign mode? I mean, you know, all the things that he's been saying out there, untethered to reality, you know, the going on about the caravan and, you know, that, you know, full of, of um, you know, Middle Easterners um, and uh, and even like just sort of blurting out, oh, there's going to be a, you know, a, a middle class uh, tax cut, you know, even though Congress isn't in session and that's never going to happen. You know, he, he's just at this point, he's just throwing out whatever he can and seeing what sticks. Isn't that sort of his M.O.? Yeah, he's definitely in, in campaign mode, and he's you know been on the trail almost every night at these rallies where he's got people chanting CNN sucks, and he's making these outlandish claims. I mean, I, I fully fact check his his claim of unknown Middle Easterners in this migrant caravan, and you know there's no government agency backing this up. And in fact, the most recent State Department um, reports on the subject indicate that there's been no credible threat of terrorists from the Mideast coming up through the Mexican border, and it's very unlikely that would happen. So he is, you know, in this campaign mode. 
Um, and that includes these war, these wars on the press. Um, I think the president's defenders, you know, would say, you know, that, yes, but he's also come out and, you know, said that this violence is bad. And, you know, did we blame Bernie Sanders when this guy shot up the baseball field who, you know, was evidently more of a liberal? Um, and he did that last year. At the same time, having been on the trail myself, I just came back from watching um, Senators Cory Booker and Kamala Harris um, in South Carolina. And both of them have this central campaign theme um, that seems to be emerging as they're, you know, testing 2020 waters that we should love each other, and specifically that Democrats should love Republicans. And that's such a stark contrast to the president's darker campaign messaging. Really? I mean, I, that's, uh, I haven't been out there with you, but uh, are, are Booker and Harris really talking about loving Republicans? Yes, and, and it's actually really... Is that a quote? Or how, how, do, how do they put it? Well, you know, they, they both put it slightly differently, but, you know, Cory Booker has always been kind of an emotional, touchy-feely guy. Um, and, you know, he said that, you know, one, one of his big lines that he keeps turning back to is, um, if America hasn't broken your heart at one point, you don't love her enough. And that's sort of, however upset we are, we turn around and fix this with love. And Kamala Harris has, you know, a, a, a slightly different version of that. But, you know, she talks about how we all need to come together. And this is a, an inflection point, but it won't be fixed without togetherness. Um, and what's what's hilarious about that is, you know, just in the past week or two, we saw Fox News and other right wing media attack Booker, attack Eric Holder for saying things like Democrats should, quote unquote, get in the face of Republicans. And, you know, this idea that Democrats are out there fomenting violence. And in the case of Senator Booker, they were literally taking a quote about getting in people's faces and protesting from a speech where in the same speech he was talking about the need to love Republicans. So, you know, there are people out there in the right wing media sphere that are muddying the waters a bit. But there really is a contrast in the rhetoric. President Trump saying enemy of the people and Democrats saying you know, love and happiness. Yeah, but, but, but I mean, I, I, I do have to wonder about that love and happiness stuff, because, look, if the Democrats do prevail in the election, if they get back control of the House and possibly even the Senate, although that doesn't look likely at the moment, you know, the full expectation is we're going to see full out war from the Democrats uh, with investigations, subpoenas, hearings, uh, one after another of everybody in the Trump White House and the Trump administration. Right. So I, I don't know how that love and happiness rhetoric is going to fit in with the reality of what the Democratic agenda clearly is. Should they get back control of Congress? Well, I think it goes back to the old question you hear about from comedians, right? There's there's punching up and there's punching down. And I think Democrats, you know, they clearly take issue with President Trump. They are attacking his policies left and right and accusing him of all, all manner of misdeeds. But in President Trump's case, when you see him take the stump, he's attacking people like this group of migrants. He's attacking people like the press. He's attacking groups that can't necessarily you know, defend themselves in the same way and and really aren't on his level as a president. Well, interesting perspective, Hunter. We'll be back to you in the near future once again on Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Hunter. Be safe out there on the campaign trail. (laughs) Pretty wild times. All right, joining us is Andrew Romano, our West Coast correspondent based in L.A. uh, and the author of 
Midterm Mania, the excellent uh, column that Andrew's been writing with the help of his uh, Yahoo News uh, colleagues that offers a kind of bird's eye view of the midterm elections. So let's start there, Andrew. Why don't you, you were 12 days out. Why don't you give us um, a sense of where you think uh, things stand right now, both in terms of uh, the Senate races and and the House, and particularly uh, whether it looks like the balance of power uh, may shift? Yeah. One of the big stories of the year, obviously, has been the question of whether there's going to be a blue wave, whether Democrats powered by anti-Trump enthusiasm will take over both the House and the Senate. What we've seen in sort of recent days and recent weeks is a kind of bifurcation there. So right now it's looking very probable somewhere in the 85 percent chance uh, range that Democrats will get the 23 seats, at least the 23 seats they need to regain control of the House. On the Senate side, however, it's not as rosy a picture for them, mainly because the map is just very unfavorable for Democrats. They're uh, defending 10 seats in states that Trump won in 2016. And in the wake of the the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, which have kind of reawakened the Republican base, kind of sort of reemphasized the polarization we've seen in our politics, uh, those voters in those red states seem to be kind of coming home to the Republican candidates. And so the chances that Democrats get the flip the two seats that they need to, to get control of the Senate have decreased. Um, and it's almost the exact opposite picture, something like an 80 percent chance uh, that that Republicans will keep control. More, and favor. more than that, they're, they're likely to even uh, gain some seats in the Senate, right? Some of these red state Democrats who are up for reelection. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the likeliest one there is probably Heidi Heitkamp in uh, North Dakota, a uh, moderate uh, Democrat running for re-election is looking very uh, endangered. Um, there are other seats that Republicans could potentially flip uh, in the Senate as well. Claire McCaskill in Missouri is probably the, the sort of second likeliest in that category. So they could actually wind up picking up seats even if they lose right. you know, so on 35 skull- seats in the House. So on skullduggery, our political analysis here would be more chance of Trump being impeached, less chance of Trump being convicted in the Senate. Yes, although I don't know how you can have a less chance than a zero chance of Trump being convicted in the Senate, because that's where we probably were before. But look, you know, Andrew, I do wonder about the wild card uh, of the impact of these pipe bombs uh, being uh, sent to former presidents Obama and Clinton and, and other prominent Democrats, and the extent to which this will be perceived as... Uh, being connected in some way or related in some way to the inflammatory rhetoric of the president, if that if that idea begins to take root, um, that could, uh, I would think, hurt the president uh, politically in this, uh, hurt Republicans, and you know could could change some of the calculus. It's a really interesting question. I mean, I, the position I kind of default to on all of these things now is everyone chooses their own reality. And it's, it's so we're already so divided and polarized on these questions that it, whatever seems to happen just seems to kind of retrench what people already think. So in this case, it's hard to imagine Democrats getting much more motivated to vote. They have been chomping at the bit uh, since the day Trump was elected to get out there and rebuke him in these midterm elections. On the reverse side, 
Republicans, one of the big questions was, you know, is Trump's base going to be kind of dispirited the way we saw Republicans kind of not turn out in 2006 when uh, George Bush was the president uh, and it led to a huge wave for Democrats. And that's just not the case in Trump's America. What we've seen in the past couple of weeks is Republicans in rural areas, especially after the Kavanaugh hearings, getting you know more motivated to go out and reinforce uh, their support for for Trump's GOP. And so you know, in the case of these pipe bombs, you already are seeing uh, you know Republicans claiming it was a false flag attack, something that Democrats did to you know uh, to gin up uh, a support. Um, and I, I guess I just sort of feel like it's just going to reinforce the polarization mm-hmm. that we've already seen. So if you uh, are a uh, someone who's interested in politics but is not a total junkie like all of us are and presumably our listeners on Skullduggery, uh, but you want to watch on election night and and, and what do you what do you, what should you be looking for? What are going to be the telltale signs to know whether there's going to be a a blue wave or whether the Republicans are actually like, you know, going to end up holding on uh, to the House of Representatives. Are there particular races that you're focused on that will uh, be kind of key indicators? Well, honestly, I mean, I'm, it's not just for personal reasons. I'm focused on that, that race in South Jersey. It's the third congressional district, um, South Jersey area, Philadelphia suburbs. And one of the reasons why, uh, first of all, the polls close relatively early, so you're going to get sort of, you know, some of the earlier returns coming in from the East Coast there. But it's also just... I think it's going to be a bellwether district. The, the race is too cl- close to call. There was just a new poll that came out today that has Kim a little bit ahead, uh, about three percentage points, um, but it's you know within the margin of error. And it's it's a race that's being fought, I think, on representative terrain. Uh, there are sort of affluent suburbs in the eastern part of the district near Philadelphia, and the western part of the district, or sorry, reverse, the western part of the district is near Philly. The eastern part of the district is a little more rural. This is where the Trump voters are. And, you know, the big question is going to be, we know that the suburban uh, college-educated voters are fired up to vote against Trump. Are his sort of rural white less educated uh, base voters than it's going to show up in equal numbers and which one's going to win out. So I think a district like that is uh, is going to be a really representative one, um, and it's going to come in early, so it might give you some clues as to where the night is heading. There's always upsets, uh, especially in midterms. Races, yeah, you don't see... Uh, you don't see it coming. So give us uh, you know, two potential upsets that you see on the radar screen that nobody else does. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, the Duncan Hunter race out here in California is going to be interesting to watch. This is a heavily Republican district um, east of San Diego. He has uh, an opponent that no one thought really had an, a chance, a young Democrat, uh, you know, 30 years old, um, and, uh, you know, I think that that could be an upset because Hunter's had a lot of scandals. Um, I don't know how representative it's going to be overall. And I'm just, you know, I mean, we're all fascinated by Beto O'Rourke in Texas, but I'm really interested in watching that race to see, um, you know, obviously he's been trailing in the polls. It's a heavy lift. But if anyone can uh, expand the electorate, which is what he's claiming he's going to be able to do, turn out uh, non-voters, whether they're independents or Democrats with a big ground game with a lot of money invested with a lot of charisma and media attention, that's going to be the place that's going to happen. So I think that's kind of a test of uh, whether Democrats can, you know, run as progressives in 
more moderate places and use sort of the power of their campaigns to uh, to change the shape of the electorate. My, Just we'll remember that. Oh, go ahead. You got it. Okay, I, I got my own candidate for it, and it's in Jersey, your home state, uh, Menendez. I'm not quite sure he's going to make it. I think the baggage of that uh, uh, indictment, uh, he did get off, but uh, you know it was pretty damning. The details on the corruption case against him. Um, what uh, What do you think? Well, the everybody, are, he loses. Y- you know what? Everyone can. Right. Find out what Romano's view is of this if they read his excellent uh, profile of that race in which he concluded the opposite of you, Isakoff, which is that uh, between the issues of, of you know, corruption um, and tribalism – uh, tribalism wins out, and in yeah. this election, and and you think well, you well, think well, that well, well, what does he know? What, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will I will say, I, yeah, I think it's I think it is going to be a really interesting race for that reason. Obviously, we've seen uh, you know Republicans sort of stick by Trump no matter what kind of scandal comes out, and this is kind of the reverse scenario. It's Menendez had a you know pretty he had a severe rebuke from the Senate Ethics Committee. Uh, he was. Uh, there was a hung jury in his corruption trial, um, but you know New Jersey voters are not fans of him. He's got a huge disapproval rating, and still they're saying they're going to vote for him. So yeah. it, it might be that the parties see eye to eye on this in a way that they don't see eye to eye on other issues. All right, no one well, cares about corruption anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. not good for uh, not our good. business. <laughs> well, maybe if they just start calling yeah. it skullduggery <laughs> rather than corruption. All right, we got to go. Uh, last thing I want to say just very quickly is people will get the benefit of Romano's excellent analysis if they tune in to the uh, Yahoo News live stream of the election. November 6th, uh, yeah. we go live at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, um, and Andrew will be there throughout the course of the evening. So uh, everyone should tune in. All right. Thanks. Great. Thanks, guys. All right. See you, Andrew. Thanks to Anthony Scaramucci, Hunter Walker, and Andrew Romano for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time with replays at 10 p.m. and then Sundays at 2 a.m. and 1 p.m. We'll talk to you next week.